It's Philosophy Talk. Hi, I'm Troy McClure. You may remember me from such films as The Greatest Story Ever Hooled and They Came to Burgle Carnegie Hall. Living on through one's work, living on through one's children and one's grandchildren and one's great-grandchildren. But what happens when there's nobody who remembers you? We may remember, Troy, from such films as The Verdict Was Mail Fraud and Leper in the Backfield. What if human life were coming to an end in 30 years? Would the life of the last human on Earth be meaningful? I want to see the Troy McClure I remember from such films as Make Out King of Montana and The Electric Gigolo. <laughs> Living on through others. Our guest is Samuel Scheffler, author of Death and the Afterlife. Goodbye, Troy. I'll always remember you, but not from your films. Hi, I'm Ray Briggs. And I'm Josh Landy. Thank you for downloading this episode of Philosophy Talk. Did you know that we've got a library of more than 500 episodes over at our website? Yeah, philosophytalk.org, we question everything. Except your intelligence. From Aristotle to Zeno, from anarchy to Zen. Become a subscriber today at philosophytalk.org. And now, on with the show. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Our program originates at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that themselves originate at Philosopher's Corner at Stanford. That's where Ken teaches philosophy, and I did for 40 years. 40 wonderful and memorable years, I hope, John. Today, we're talking about collective immortality. Living on through others. Collective immortality means that although each of us individually is going to die, the species as a whole will endure after our deaths. If not forever, then at least for a fairly long time. Oh, bully for the species, John. Frankly, though, I'm with Woody Allen. He says, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve immortality through not dying. I don't want to live on in the hearts of my countrymen. I want to live on in my apartment. Well, no offense to Woody, but being confined for an eternity to even a really nice Manhattan apartment like I imagine he has would get pretty boring after a while. I think you're missing Woody's deeper point, though, John. The prospect of death threatens to sap life of its meaning, and this notion of living on through others doesn't change that one bit. Well, I think Woody's wrong. Actually, the prospect of death is what gives life urgency and purpose. Oh, come on. Then why do people work so hard to avoid death? Well, people do dread death, Ken. I'll give you that. No doubt about it. But dreading death is consistent with living with purpose and determination, even in the face of death. What would really strip our lives of meaning, however, would be if we knew that nothing, nobody would live on after we die, uh -huh. if mankind would die out soon after our death. Uh, John, I, I don't want to sound callous or anything, but frankly, why should I care whether other people live on after I die and I'm not around to worry about them? Well, you care about your children living on after you and, and about other people you hold near and dear, don't you? Well, yeah, okay, sure, you got me there, but I have a personal stake in them. When you when you talk about collective immortality, especially of the species forever and all that stuff, you're thinking about people in the distant future in whom I have no personal stake whatsoever. 
Come on, why should I care about them? Uh, okay, you think you have no personal stake in the existence of future generations. Let's do a little thought experiment. Suppose it tomorrow, out of the blue, some virus from outer space caused every living human being to be infertile. From that day forward, no new people will ever be born. Slowly, but inexorably. We'll all die out. Oh, John Sheepers, what's gotten into you this morning? That's a gruesome thought experiment. Well, <clears throat> take it as it is, though. Would you keep trying to finish all those books you've been working on forever? There won't be anybody around to read and appreciate your brilliance. Well, I, I think I would keep uh, writing. I'd keep writing for my own sake. I'd want to bring closure to my long-standing projects, and they are pretty long-standing. <laughs> yes, but but why? I mean, all those books you've devoted your life to will just sit on some dusty library shelf, never to be read by another human being. Nothing more than food for worms. Doesn't that thought fill you with dread? Doesn't it undermine your confidence that it's really worth writing them in the first place? Gosh, John, if you put it that way, jeepers. So you see... You do have a stake in the future of humanity, a personal stake. Look, look, I, I, I'm willing to grant uh, some of the things we do, we do with an eye toward uh, the distant future, a future that doesn't contain us or anyone we love. I grant you that. But, but it's just not true, as you seem to be saying, that everything that gives our lives meaning in the here and now is hostage in that way to the existence of future generations. It's just not true. Well, what kind of exceptions do you have in mind? Well, for example, think of the pleasures of a fine meal or a beautiful sunset or, or, or the company of your dearest friends. Those things contribute to the meaningfulness of our lives, surely. And they would still do so even if we knew that we were the last people on Earth. But could there actually be a life? I mean, a well-lived and meaningful life that consisted wholly of such pleasures? I mean, I don't think so. Well, well, why not? I don't see why not. Well, because so much of human life is bound up with the existence of future generations. And our whole picture of the world and where we are in it would lose its point if we knew there were no more people to come. Go back to my thought experiment. I mean, after a while, what was the point of becoming an elementary school teacher or or an OBGYN if there were no new babies to be delivered and children to be educated? Well, I see your point about that, but I guess it's a question of proportions. How much of our lives is essentially bound up in this way with the existence of future generations? And are those aspects of our lives that are so bound up things we could easily do without or are they essential parts, central parts of the very meaning of what it is to be a human being? Well, as usual, excellent questions, Ken. To help us think about them, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Shuka Kalantari, out to ask some real-life people what they themselves would do if the world were coming to an end in 30 days. She files this report. In a scene from the 80s classic Heathers, Winona Ryder's character asks her fellow high school students what they would do if the world was about to end. You inherit $5 million the same day aliens land on the Earth and say they're going to blow it up in two days. What do you do? That's easy. I just slide that wad over to my father because he is like one of the top brokers in the state. If I got that money, I'd give it all to the homeless. Every cent. What if you didn't inherit any money, but the world was still ending? Let's say it was ending in exactly 30 days. Would you go to work tomorrow? Would work even have any meaning if nobody existed to appreciate it in the future? I see a lot of death. I see a lot of life. That's Tamara McBride. 
She's a family medicine doctor at Contra Costa County Hospital in Martinez, California. I deliver babies and I help people die as well. McBride says if the world was about to end, she'd still go to work tomorrow morning. The quintessential place for a family doctor would be at the end of the world, right? I mean, isn't that would be like my swan song, you know, guiding people out. Like, that's what I do every day. McBride says she'd also keep delivering babies because for her, the value of that experience wouldn't be diminished by the impending apocalypse. The importance of moments doesn't lie in the length of time that you're in them, but the quality and the effort and the presence that you put into it. Now, what if instead of a doctor, you were some DJ playing music on a public radio station? Welcome one and all to Blues in the Bay Area and beyond. It just so happens our producer, Devin Strolovich, fits that description. Devin is the host of Fog City Blues, a music program on KALW in San Francisco. There are plenty of things I would give up, but I think the live radio show, telling stories through a sequence of songs, is categorically a pleasure that I wouldn't want to give up under almost any circumstances. Devin says his radio show would be a good distraction from the coming doom. But would people even listen to blues and jazz if the world was about to end? I think people would continue to listen. Um, You know, music has got to be one of these things that will help people in this time of anxiety. Blues may not be everyone's first choice, but maybe I would tailor the playlist to the, uh, the impending end. I started thinking, what would I do if the world was ending in 30 days? Would I continue being the roving philosophical reporter or do any journalism at all? Would I even finish this story? My answer is no. I mean, I love my job. I love radio and I love philosophy. But I wouldn't want to stare at a computer and write a script all day. I don't think I'd want to share other people's stories anymore because I'd want to savor every moment of my own family's story. I'd lounge around the house and take my kid to the park three times a day. I'd take a lot of walks. But that's just me. What would a philosopher do if the world was ending in 30 days? For Philosophy Talk, I'm Shuka Kalantari. Thanks, Shuka, for that interesting piece. Uh, Sounds like if the world's coming to an end in 30 days, we'd have to worry about replacing Shuka, but Devin might hang in there. If he had time over after Fog City Blues, I'm John Perry. With me is my fellow Stanford philosopher, Ken Taylor. And today we're asking about collective immortality, living on through others. We're joined now by Samuel Scheffler. He's a professor of philosophy at New York University. He's author of Death and the Afterlife. Sam, welcome to Philosophy Talk. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to come on your show. Sam, the significance of collective immortality, as you call it in your your wonderful book, isn't something that philosophers have thought a a great deal about. It was a very original choice of topic. You wrote a whole book about it. So, So what first turned you on to this relatively unexplored question? Well, John, it was actually uh, seeing the movie The Children of Men uh, back in 2006 or 2007, uh, which is based on the wonderful novel by P.D. James with the same title and presents a version of the scenario you described a few minutes ago. The human race has become infertile 
and no births have occurred in over 25 years. And so people are confronted vividly with the prospect that the human race is just gradually disappearing. Nobody under the age of 25 exists anymore. That's a and great movie, to... by the way. It's a great movie. It's very dark. <laughs> if you haven't seen that, I don't know, it's not still out, but if you haven't seen that movie, go see it. Yeah, don't share you up. But you were going to say And I'll something. put in a plug for the book, too. The book is, uh, yeah. is quite wonderful. So, so people do care a lot about their own survival, uh, and they care a lot about the survival of those they hold near and dear. But, but what I get from your book is you think they should care at least as much, maybe even more, about the survival of future generations. So start by giving us a hint before the break uh, of, of why you think that. Well... I think, actually, that people do care more about future generations than they realize, many people, and that they care in one respect more than they care about their own survival. More than they care uh, about their own survival. Really? Yes. <laughs> Only in one respect, and the one respect is this. The prospect that other people, uh, the prospect that we ourselves are going to die does not sap our sense of the significance of what we're now doing. It doesn't make us feel as if our current activities are worthless. We cheerfully continue to engage in the activities we regard as valuable. But the prospect that no new people would come into existence, that the race is just dying out, that prospect, I claim, has the capacity to uh, diminish considerably the range of valuable activities that we would perceive, the options available to us that would seem worthwhile. And in that respect, um, it suggests that we're much more dependent on uh, the continued existence of the species than we are on our own personal survival. So, so this is a start. This is an interesting thought. I mean, there's lots of there's lo philosophers have argued a lot about you know whether we should dread the prospect of death and whether it would sap us of meaning. Tolstoy's uh, death of Ivan Ilyich is a big exploration of this question of living in fear of death. Straps uh, uh, strips Ivan Ilyich of of life's meaning. Epictetus says, no, don't worry so much about death. But not too many philosophers have thought this thing that you're thinking, and I, 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 I'm a little puzzled why that is. I mean, why haven't philosophers addressed this issue of yours? Do you think? Well, um, you know, I don't know why they haven't addressed it. I'm not even sure that they haven't. There, I'm, I'm sure there are people who've thought about this before. I don't think I'm the very first, but we're. I, I think part of the answer is that we know we're going to die personally, and we're quite preoccupied with that fact as we get older, many of us, um, and we know how we feel about that. The existence of other people after we die is just sort of taken for granted. Right. So we're rarely called upon to reflect on the significance that it has for us. So, okay, we're going to dig into the significance that that has for us in a little bit. But I'll, I'll say right now, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. Today, we're thinking about collective immortality, living on through others with Sam Scheffler, author of Death and the Afterlife. What if you knew that all human life uh, would come to an end shortly after you yourself died. How would that change the way you live in the here and now? Would you increase your pledge to your local public radio station, maybe? Could you possibly go on living as you always have? Meaning melancholy and future generations, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues.
all the lonely people buried along with their names, for goodness sakes. Were their lives meaningless because they didn't live on in others? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Ah, except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor, and we're thinking about collective immortality. We're calling it Living On Through Others. Our guest is Sam Scheffler from NYU, author of Death and the Afterlife. So, Sam, let's start to dig into your central kind of argument. So you imagine a couple different scenarios, but one's related to the children of men, right, that novel and movie that we referred to earlier, in which the population is slowly but inexorably dwindling to nothing. Now, is your claim, is your central claim that people in that situation... Uh, they could not live meaningful lives at all? I mean, what, what exactly are you claiming about such a scenario? Well, my claim isn't quite that strong. Uh, I'm not claiming that nobody could lead a meaningful life, but I am claiming that the possibilities for living a rich and meaningful life would be considerably diminished. Many of the ways that people now find meaning in their lives, many of the activities that seem to them worthwhile to pursue, would come to seem pointless to them. Uh, And so the range of activities that people would find rewarding or fulfilling would be drastically diminished. Well, that seems right in a certain way, but I'm trying to figure out the significance of that. It seems right that many of our current activities are future-oriented, right? If I'm a bridge builder, I might be a bridge builder, and the bridge isn't a monumental project, and I'm only right. around to build. Uh, we and none of us are going to finish it. We're not going to see it finished in our lifetimes. I mean, countries like ours don't undertake such monumental projects uh, right now. But there could be monumental projects. But okay. But I, I, that's just the question of like, well, some of the things that we do would no longer have significance. But life itself, valuing itself, meaning itself, would it be fundamentally under? undermine or just, you know, certain kinds of things? Well, I think that it's quite a lot of things that would be undermined. And I think that that fact um, is actually quite striking when you think about it. Remember, um, this is not an effect that our own mortality has on us. We know we personally are going to die. Many of us are terrified about that fact. We think it's of great significance. And yet it doesn't deprive most of us of the strong sense that what we're doing is worth doing. And uh, indeed, that's why we're so unhappy about dying. We're going to miss out on all these wonderful things that we like to do and that we find it worthwhile doing. But the fact that no new people would come into existence, the fact that these non- as yet non-existent strangers are never going to come into existence, that fact would suddenly deprive many of our activities here and now of their, of their uh, value for us. And that suggests that we're much more implicated in what happens to human life over the long haul than we normally think of ourselves as being. So I, it's really thinking about this. It's an invitation to reflect on the significance that the future has for us. Okay, so I'm, I'm reflecting on it, and I, I, I give you two cases. One case is from Woody Allen. This kid tells these folks he won't do his homework. And I say, why? And he said, well, because he just found out that the Earth is going to collapse into a supernova in a couple billion years. Uh, the second case is me. I'm 72. Let's say I'm very much involved in trying to finish my book, The Semantics of Nasty Footnotes. And uh, uh, then I discover that, that, that the world, you know. Well, that's certainly some, important, no matter what happens. Yeah, yeah. somebody's got to write it. Uh, so, so I find out that five years after I die, uh, uh, no human life. Roughly the scenario in your book. Now, I think most of us would agree that the kid should do his homework. 
It's not a yeah. good excuse. On the other right. hand, I think a lot of us have sympathy, as you suggest we should and would, with my lack of motivation once I discover the world's ending that soon. Now, I'm not I'm not kind of giving you, you know, which hair makes a man bald kind of case. But somewhere between those, there's a natural point where you say, well, you know, that far along, uh, it wouldn't change my motivation much. If the world is going to end through global warming in 50 years, that'd be pretty depressing. If it's going to collapse into a supernova uh, in a couple zillion years, uh, as, as Tom Nagel points out, yeah, big deal. So do you have a natural range of points where, where this concern becomes uh, uh, limited? You know, I don't. Um, I don't know that the, um, that people are going to be able to give very precise or uniform answers to that question. All that we seem able to say is that it matters to us that human life should continue for a good long time after mm. our deaths. And different people, I mean, I have actually asked people this question, uh -huh. and they come up with very different numbers for how long would satisfy them. I mean, there's a different kind of question raised by the the Woody Allen uh, case, the Albie Singer problem, as I call mm -hmm. it, and that's whether it's consistent at all to have such divergent reactions to the eventual destruction of the human race and to its imminent destruction. I'm inclined to think that it is, but it's a sure. bit puzzling why. Yeah, well, 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 stop on that. Let's not go too quickly because that was my going to be my question. John asked you a different oh, question. Oh, sorry, Ken. That, no, John asked you a different question about where the dividing line is, but why should there be a dividing line at all? It's clearly absurd for the kid to say, well, I'm not going to do my homework because, uh, and now, and ask why it's absurd, because that is so distant. I'm not quite sure why it's absurd, but something like it is so distant in time, so distant from anything that you can affect that you should be unaffected by it. I mean, to the extent that, I mean, it's just like, that's way, 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 way off. Of course we know that in the distant future, we're not going to be around. Okay. So why is it consistent? to have these two different attitudes. I don't quite see why it is. Well, um, the thought that it isn't suggests that there's pressure to standardize our reaction to the two cases, sort of rational pressure to think about them in the same way. But that's compatible with thinking either that we shouldn't be bothered about yeah. uh, either of these cases or that we should be bothered about both of right, them. Maybe, right. uh, maybe Al V. Singer was right to, to think that he shouldn't do his homework. Um, if we if we want to resist that pressure, then we have to find some way in which the uh, in which the two cases are different, and that's an interesting question to speculate about. Well, the w one way in which they're different is is you think, well, this kid, you know, he's got a point about the ultimate meaninglessness of all existence, maybe. But the fact of the matter is, if he doesn't do his homework and education, he's going to have a rough life. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, if everybody dies five years after I'm dead, uh, that doesn't affect my life, but it does affect the lives of people I care about. Well, how about 50 years? Well, you know, I'll probably have some grandchildren still hanging around and maybe some great-grandchildren. How about 300 years? Well, unless I'm, you know, like uh, the Queen of England or something, I imagine my, <laughs> my line, if it hasn't died out, any memory of it will have. Or in my case, I would say, look, okay, uh, if... If the millennials take over, I'm less interested in the world. That's already happened. I'm still hanging in there. But kind of imagine uh, uh, generations, five or six or seven generations as far removed from me uh, uh, in the same line to the same degree as the present generation of kids that don't read books and don't know who Bing Crosby is. Do I really care about that? I'm not so sure. 
What do you think, Sam? <laughs> well, you know, I think um, I think it's not just a matter of one's personal connection to p- individual people and in the subsequent generations. I mean, I think this whole issue arises just as forcefully and vividly for people who have no children. Um, I think they too would find that uh, if the human race were were dying out inexorably in the children of men type scenario, that their own uh, perceptions of the value of their activities would be affected just as much as people with children. I do agree that the effect seems to diminish um, as you move further into time. If if uh, we imagine that the human race is going to become uh, is going to be become extinct in 300 years or 500 years or 1,000 years, it may seem uh, the problem may begin to seem less pressing. Uh, but I don't think it's, uh, it's at all clear. When you, when you move to very remote distance, uh, distances in time, then one thing that seems clear is we just don't know how to think about these big numbers with respect to time. We usually operate in our personal lives with a very restricted range of reference to future times. And when somebody gives us a very big number, it's hard to know how our feelings should be sensitive to those uh, to those kinds of numbers. You're li- um, sorry, go ahead. You're, you're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about collective immortality. We'd love to have you join this conversation. Christina from Fremont on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Christina. Hi. Um, I'm wondering how, um, since there's such a collective belief, there's so many people that believe in a spiritual being or a higher power or a god of some sort, since that's the majority of people, I'm wondering how that affects how we view this, um, you know, if we could end up extinct. You know, how does that affect things coming from a spiritual point of view? Uh, well, thank you, Christina. That's an excellent question because certainly lots of lots of people have um, religious beliefs about the future of the human race. I'm getting an echo, by the way, of my own voice at this point. Uh, and, but um, and I want to say in response to that that it's an excellent question. Obviously, many people do have religious beliefs that are relevant to the question of their personal immortality, the survival of the species, and so on. Some people may believe, may have uh, religious beliefs of a kind that would insulate them against the, the kinds of worries I'm discussing, or so you might think. You might think that if you're convinced that um, in a sort of uh, in a form of eternity or a kind of personal afterlife, then you wouldn't be troubled about the imminent disappearance of the human race. But I don't actually think that that's obvious. Uh, that that would be the reaction of all people. I mean, many things still wouldn't seem worth doing, despite your religious uh, convictions, I think, if the end of the human race were imminent. Uh, Working on seismic strengthening of the Bay Bridge uh, (laughs) still might seem like a kind of pointless activity if you knew that the world was about to come to an end. So I think that religious convictions... Uh, which differ from one another enormously, of course, can certainly complicate the picture, but I don't think that they simply make the problem go away. So, Sam, I want to ask you if you're talking about psychology, right? People are built different ways, and different people might have different responses. But we philosophers like to think of ourselves as the voice of something called cold impersonal reason. I mean, are you talking about you know, our belief in the significance of our projects would be rationally undermined, or just it would just be a psychological shock of such things that we would lose our motivation, we would lose our, we would lose our investment. I mean, is, are we talking rationality or just kind of 
individual psychology here? That's a great question, Ken. Um, and I'm inclined to think that it's not just individual psychology, that it's not just, as it were, a purely causal process. Um, I mean, we could imagine some sort of mineral deficiency might lead you to lose confidence in the value of your activities, but we wouldn't think that that was a very interesting fact um, because it was just a purely causal effect of something that had happened to you. I believe that many of our activities would would reasonably lose their significance for us. It actually wouldn't make as much sense uh, to engage in them as it previously did. Again, consider that you're someone trying to find a cure for cancer or to improve the quality of early childhood education or to work on building seismically strengthened uh, bridges and highways. Those things just wouldn't have the same kind of point. So, if uh, the world were coming to an end. So I take that to suggest something about really the kind of thesis that you're really defending. Uh, I mean, you're trying to show us something about the, I don't, I don't know what to call it exactly, the rational structure or something of our valuing, that our, that our valuing what we value is tied up, is essentially tied up with uh, the fact that we're part of a continuing, a continuing history of human life, right? That it's not just ask what you should care about, ask what you should do, is not just take you in isolation and ask what matters to you. It's somehow there are these rational structure. there are these structures that give us kind of essential reasons or something like that to care about more than just ourselves, more than just this moment. Is that, is, you see what I'm getting at? Yes, and I, and I think that is what I'm getting at, except that I wouldn't want to say it's true of all of our activities, and I wouldn't want to say that it's... Um, that it's true with respect to every dimension of our activities. Some activities might retain part of their point or value. Some might retain all of their point or value under, say, infertility conditions. But many of them would lose some or all of their value, as in the examples I gave, but not only in those examples. Examples. So I do want to say that the structure of our values makes a kind of implicit reference to, um, an, or, or an implicit makes an implicit assumption of an ongoing human life, so, in ways that we rarely recognize. Just going back to Christina's uh, uh, point, I just want to bring up that there is one philosopher, uh, uh, Alfred North Whitehead, the great philosopher, who, who. Uh, he, he's not really a religious philosopher, although he does believe in the Godhead, which emanates eternal ideas. But uh, I'm not sure how godly the Godhead was. But but his uh, he believed in what he called objective immortality, which is basically continuing to have a discernible causal influence. And, of course, that diminishes with time. I mean, uh, 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 you have the most influence on, on the things closest to you. Now, I don't know if he developed within that general framework uh, uh uh, some conception of, of of what in particular we care about, um, but anyway, it's it's a it's a philosophical position that I think would would uh, might might provide a metaphysical basis for your ideas. Yes, <laughs> although I don't think that the reasons for caring about what happens in the future, uh, the reasons that 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 affects our the perceived value of our activities now derives exclusively from the thought of the causal influence that our activities will have. I think that many, many of our activities would lose some of their perceived value, even though we don't now expect them to have great causal mm -hmm. influence. 
So this is fascinating stuff. We'll dig in more. There's a lot to, lot to talk about here, and we've got a whole lineup of callers. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about collective immortality, living on through others. Our guest is Sam Scheffler from New York University. If the meaning of our lives in the here and the now is partly hostage to the existence of future generations, so what should we do differently? How much weight should we give to their lives as opposed to our own? Should we be making greater sacrifices on their behalf? Caring for the future versus caring for ourselves when Philosophy Talk continues. Makes no difference how I carry on. Just don't talk about me when I'm If I told you that was Billie Holiday singing, please don't talk about me when I'm gone, I would be violating her request, so I'll keep that a secret. <laughs> Uh, if no one talks about you when you're gone, does your life have no meaning? I'm John Perry. This is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Sam Scheffler, author of Death and the Afterlife. And we're thinking about <laughs> collective immortality, living on through others. And we've got a caller on the line, Miles in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Miles. What's your comment or question? Hi there. Thank you. This is a really interesting topic. And just thinking about the the pressure that the notion of collective immortality puts on our day-to-day -day activities. Um, it just, I, I, in, this came up earlier. I just, it, it seems like the topic of global warming could be a really interesting lens to look at this problem through because the time scale, depending on who you are, is either pretty urgent or not urgent at all. And so how can we, you know, I'd love to hear more, hear you guys play out sort of this theory through that lens and, and what, what it might be what kind of pressures it might be putting on people or how, you know, the, how it becomes a factor and how people respond to the notion of global warming. Uh, Miles, this is an excellent question. You took the words right out of our brains, I want you to know. So, Sam, what do you think about Miles', uh, Miles question? How should we balance issues like global warming, which happen over a long scale and are sometimes urgent and not urgent, I mean, from this perspective of yours? Right. Well, uh, I think that the problem of climate change is plenty urgent enough for us to be worrying about it. And I think that the kinds of considerations I've been discussing reinforce the sense uh, of how urgent it is to address anything that's a serious threat to the continued survival and flourishing of the human race, as I believe that climate change is. So I do think uh, that the argument I've been developing is relevant um, but I think a great part of its relevance is to uh, recast a bit the reasons why we should be concerned yeah. about climate change and other threats to human survival. Tell um, us about those reasons. What, what do you mean? How, do, how does it recast the reasons? Well, often when people talk about our reasons for uh, caring what happens to future generations, they put it in terms of obligations or responsibilities of ours. These are vulnerable people, these future people. We can make their lives miserable if we don't watch what we're doing, and we really should do something about it. And that discourse of obligation and responsibility, I think in a way, um, isn't um, always maximally effective. People have lots of obligations and responsibilities, and this may just contribute to obligation fatigue. Um, but if I'm right that uh, we would be profoundly dismayed by the disappearance of the human race and that our own, many of our own activities would cease to seem as valuable to us, uh, then I think this suggests that we have, in addition to any considerations of obligation to them, 
uh, we have other kinds of reasons, namely, first, that we just care so much about future generations, whether we realize it or not, as witness our dis- but is that, uh, dismay. But that's a little paradoxical. Well, I don't know if it's paradoxical. It's intriguing. Let's me, let me use that word. It's intriguing. Uh, that in, in one way, it sounds like you're suggesting we don't just have other regarding reasons for caring about uh, global warming, right? We owe it to future generations for their sake not to uh, leave a despoiled, uh, uninhabitable planet. We owe it to future generations, as it were, for our own sake that we not leave them uh, a a despoiled, ruined planet. And that seems a little, I don't know, a little strange, right? Well, I want to say two things. I want to say our other regarding reasons aren't exhausted by obligation. They're also reasons of direct concern. That's why we're so dismayed when, at the prospect of the human race imminently dying out. We care about them uh, and about their existence. Also, we have, as it were, self-interested reasons. Our lives would be impoverished if, they, if the human race were about to die out. Do you think and we, that's the kind of reason you were talking yeah, about. Yeah, do you think we care about them directly, intrinsically, or do we care about them only as a means to caring about ourselves? Because, okay, we want our lives to have meaning. That's a self-regarding thing. Oh, they're instrumental to our, uh, their existence is instrumental or something to our lives having meaning. And so we should care about them too. I mean, do we care about no. them directly or am I missing yes. something? Uh, yes, <laughs> you okay. are missing yeah, something. Yeah, so help me that, understand better. Okay. When we consider, contemplate the prospect of humanity's dying out imminently, the initial reaction is dismay, despair, depression, and so on. Not because that will make our projects uh, less valuable, but just because it's uh, disturbing to us to consider the possibility that the human race might die out. It's because it's disturbing. To, it's because it's so disturbing that it would also affect our capacity to live in certain ways and to affect the value of our activities. But the effect on our own interests presupposes a direct concern for them. It's not that we're concerned for them only because it would affect the meaningfulness of our activities. We choose activities as it is that have a future orientation. And that, yeah. So let me ask you a, 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 a symmetry, asymmetry kind of question. Because uh, right. you're talking about the future, but we're the past to them. And I think about our relationship to the past. And Simone de Beauvoir had a thought about our relationship to the past. She said we can only have the aesthetic attitude toward the, the past. That is because we're not really involved in their disputes. It's, there's no point in our taking sides. It's over. We can observe it as a thing that happened. Someday the future will, will just regard us as like the dead past. If they don't really care about us, why should we care so much about them? If we can't control, I mean, she thought we project ourselves into the future and we want to control the narrative of the future, and that's why it's a complicated thing. But we can't control how they think about us. So, why? I mean, suppose the Nazis come along and say, ah, all those blacks, they should have been dead and in the concentration, and they see to it. Why should I care about those future Nazis? You know what I mean? Well, I'm not arguing for caring about future Nazis. I do think that the continuation of the human race as a whole does matter to us. Um, And I think that the fact that it matters to us suggests that we see the value of our own lives 
as not inseparable from our place in a temporal succession of lives that's ongoing. We're not, if you like, as individualistic as we take yeah, ourselves. I got you. But to does be. it matter how that temporal succession? What I'm trying to figure out is, does it matter how that temporal succession goes? Does it matter to me if it's the Nazis or the freedom lovers who went out, right? And if yeah, it is, sure. and if it is the Nazis who went out, do I care? If somebody told me the Nazis are going to win out, would I care as much as if I cared as the freedom lovers went winning out? No, I think that if you knew that. The human race would survive, but it was going to be, but that the human beings who survived were going to be monstrously evil yeah. forever. That was it. Evil all the way until the, until the eventual extinction of the human race. Then, of course, I think that would have would change things. And I think the way it would change things it would it, is that that would seem more like the extinction of the human race than it would like the continuation of the human race. Um, that is, I believe you would then see much of what you're doing now as less valuable than you otherwise would. Um, but you're right that this suggests that it's not no matter what. We, it's not that we want the survival of the human race no matter what. There are some conditions uh, that are implied in this, uh, in this concern. And that be that human beings be at least roughly comparable in their level of decency or no worse in their overall or average level of decency than the human beings with whom we're familiar. Sam, when I think about this, when I do your thought experiment, I find my mind running to things. Uh, I mean, I think I care about uh, <coughs> successive humanity, not because they'll continue to use the things I value, but something along those lines comes in. I want the Golden Gate, Golden Gate Bridge to continue to be appreciated. I want San Francisco to still be here. Uh, I want Lincoln, Nebraska, where I grew up, to still be a place where, where, where people thrive. We build museums so that future generations can look at the things we enjoy. Um, so is, is there an interplay between the things, the physical things, the structures, and, and also the more intellectual things that we value and part of the reason we care about humanity is because we care about these things being appreciated. I'm not saying that's rational, but I find myself thinking that way. Well, I do think that there is a factor that I haven't yet discussed, and that is that we one of the reasons we care about the future of humanity is because the future of humanity is, uh, to a great extent, the future of value. I mean, the things that we value most... Uh, are either not going to survive at all or they're not going to have anyone to appreciate them if the human race dies out. And that certainly is an important dimension of the problem. Uh, we care about the survival of humanity both because we care about them and because we care about ourselves and what happens to them affects us and because we value lots of other things that wouldn't survive or wouldn't be appreciated if the world, if, if the human race were to come to an end. We've got time for one last caller. Graham in Berkeley's on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Graham. Hi there. Thanks for taking my call. So this is kind of scaling back a little bit from global warming and the bigger, bigger issues of deep survival and going back to Woody Allen and sort of the arts and the artistic take on this. And I'm not so sure that in the case of arts and music, that any of the great artists are creating for any other reason than to better the lives of the people that are around them yeah. in their time. And it's more or less um, luck, of the, luck of the draw if they're 
music is listened to 300 years later, but I don't see any great artist creating with the express intent that it be listened to or looked at forever. I think you you have a point there, Graham, but I think the question for Sam would be if we could fully enjoy in the moment these pleasures, knowing that after we go after we're gone the world's going to end could these moment these things that fully engross us in the moment still be fully engrossing that that i think is the let's see if we can put that challenge to sam sam that's the challenge graham and i are going to put to you okay um i think graham's question is also a valid one that is whether artistic creation would still seem worth trying to pursue if under those circumstances but the question of appreciation is certainly significant and the natural thought is i think you expressed it earlier that we could still enjoy say listening to music uh even if the human race were about to come to an end and that seems plausible um but at the same time um, we should remember that our capacity to appreciate pleasures that seem like they're completely available in the moment is not independent of our other beliefs or states of mind. Everybody's familiar with the phenomenon of not being able to enjoy a piece of music that you like very much just because you're too anxious or stressed out or tired or depressed. Um, and it's not completely clear that people's capacity to, to enjoy music and other comparable uh, activities, listening to music and other comparable activities would be unaffected by uh, by this prospect. Unaffected is one thing, but completely undermined. That would be a strong claim, right? That there yeah, are no probably not. Yeah, go ahead. Probably not completely undermined. You know, in in P. D. James's novel, the protagonist. Uh, tries to listen to music a lot. He tries to get as much pleasure as he can from drinking wine, listening to music, uh, reading. But it gets harder and harder for him to find those activities rewarding. They just don't do the same things for him anymore. And that's a plausible speculation to me, although I agree with you that, it, first of all, people would probably differ in their capacity to derive enjoyment from these sorts of things. And that... Um, it's implausible that they would lose all of their capacity to deliver rewards to people. So, Sam, uh, that, I don't want to claim that they would. So, Sam, this is a fascinating topic, a fascinating conversation. I'm, I, I'm grateful. Philosophy should be grateful to you for initiating it. But right now, we have to bring it to an end. So, I'm going to thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. Our guest has been Samuel Scheffler. He's a professor of philosophy at New York University, and he's author of the very fine book, Death and the Afterlife. So, John, you got a very brief thought? Very brief? Oh, I just thought of the movie Melancholia, which, uh, uh, in which Kirsten Dunst is an acutely depressed individual who deals with the actual end of the earth much better than her non-depressed family members. And so maybe there's a lesson for all of us if the end of the world is coming. Uh, dump your effects or down the toilet. Yeah, Melancholy. Now, that's a movie. That's another one of these heavy philosophical movies. But you know what? This conversation, non-depressing version of it, continues at <laughs> Philosopher's Corner at our online community of thinkers where our motto is, get this, cogito ergo blogo, I think, therefore I blog. And you too. We need you too to become a partner in that community by visiting our website, philosophytalk.org. Now, a guy who lives well beyond his brief spell on the radio, in the hearts and minds of thinkers all over the world who listen to philosophy talk and his other efforts, it's Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, many of a life of sorts beyond the measure of our days, and history books, scrapbooks, online and on the page, we can live forever, kind of, in the memories of others. 
We can have hospitals named for us and museums and wings and chairs and auditoriums. Shakespeare and Socrates live on through culture. We also have surprised semi-immortals like Emily Dickinson and Kafka, who were nobodies in life and literary giants in death. Does branding count? We have Disney and Ford and Keynesian economics and the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. Many saints beyond sainthood have had cities named for them. In Russia, the cities named for saints were changed to Soviet heroes, then changed back again. The town where I grew up took its name from one of the railroad tycoons that first brought people there. When I moved a state away, the town I moved to was named for a woman who'd married a different rail tycoon back in the day. Both of them took the railroad money and settled in Boston or Philadelphia, some old money town, and faded from history, unlike the Stanfords and Rockefellers who left their names all over Tarnation. And posterity. But how long does this collective memory last? I think of Confederate generals and the antebellum South with its mansions and jasmine and gowns and gallant slender gentlemen. For years before we finally decided not to hang the Confederate battle flag on our pickups anymore, Confederate generals were feted and missed and mourned as though they were, not to put too fine a point on it, not guys who lost a war. And Union general, Indiana native Lou Wallace, became famous for writing Ben-Hur, a bestseller for a lifetime and more, and also at least two epic boring movies and a miniseries. But he's better known to Western buffs as the appointed governor of New Mexico Territory, where he wrote Ben-Hur in 1880. Governor Wallace met with the outlaw Billy the Kid, offering him immunity if he would testify in a criminal trial. Billy did. But the prosecutor reneged on the deal. Billy the Kid escaped, killed some people, got shot dead, became a legend. Lou Wallace left New Mexico and was appointed minister to the Ottoman Empire, which no longer exists. Lou Wallace had a high school named after him in Gary, Indiana in 1926, shut down in 2014. Gary, Indiana was named for a steel tycoon, and the city still stands. Chris Christopherson, Clue Gilliger, Paul Newman, Val Kilmer, Emilio Estevez, dozens more, they've all played the legendary Billy the Kid. The Kid's letters to Governor Lou Wallace are part of the huge collection of his papers housed by the Indiana Historical Society. Old movies, grandma's scrapbook, tomorrow's antique Facebook pages, Wikipedia entries, oh, it's all just moments in time, a fleeting look, a kiss, a lifetime, an epoch, an eternity, whatever. Unless you have really good PR for, like, forever, it's blink, and it's gone. I gotta go. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2015. Our executive producer is David Demarest. The program is produced by Devin Strolovich. Laura McGuire is our director of research. Our marketing director is Dave Millar. Thanks also to Ted Muldoon, Merle Kessler, Erica Topit, and Mark Stone. Support for Philosophy Talk comes from various groups at Stanford University and the partners at our online community of thinkers. And from the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed on this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. Not even when they're true and reasonable. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org, where you too can become a partner in our community of thinkers. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking. Why are you depressed, Alvy? Tell Dr. Flicker. It's something he read. Something he read, huh? The universe is expanding. The universe is expanding? Well, the universe is everything, and if it's expanding, someday it will break apart, and that will be the end of everything. What is that your business? He stopped doing his homework. <laughs>